We are continuing our forward journey through the Gospel of Matthew this morning, so go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1 once again. Matthew chapter 1. And by the way, I don't have a PowerPoint this morning, so uh, I pray you will forgive me for that. You might want to go ahead and put your ribbon if you have one or kind of keep your thumb or your bookmark in the, in the book of Ruth this morning because the majority of our time is going to be spent there. So, but we're looking at Matthew chapter one this morning and we are continuing on in the heritage of the king. And um, we talked about last week how this is not just a list of names. This is every name comes with a story. Every story comes with a part of the heritage of Israel. And every one of these names, Matthew has given these names and given this genealogy in order that we will see that Christ is the coming king. He is the expectation of Israel. He is the one to whom we are to look for, for the hope and conciliation of Israel. And you may remember last week that we talked about how one of the most wonderful things, if you do genealogy or if you do ancestry research or something like that, uh, you may recall that one of the most uh, fascinating things about it is not necessarily the names from which you come, but it's the stories that come with those names. And, and I mentioned that uh, I, I found out through genealogy, I, I, I knew this, but I thought it was just kind of a, a family legend. But uh, come to find out, it's actually true that I'm actually related to Johnny Cash. And, and come to find out, it's uh, my, uh, my aunt, when she got home, she pulled out her research and she clarified it for me. My grandfather is Johnny's second cousin. That's, that's how we're related. I'm still not in the will. But um, since Tim has not left me alone about that all week... Uh, he actually said this morning I should begin service by saying, hello, I'm Randy Scott, and then start playing. So, uh, so I wanted to clarify the relationship so there is no confusion if I'm gonna continue to receive grief over that. So, but anyway, um, you know, it's the stories, and I remember how I told you that when I watched the biopic that came out a few years ago, the movie uh, about Johnny Cash, I just, had a, I just had a greater connection to it knowing that you know, this was a relative. This was someone that I have a shared history with. And, and when Israel is reading these names, it, it's kind of like that for them. This is, this is a shared history. This is their heritage. This is, this is their people. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a child of God, then this is your heritage also. This is, this is the history of redemption, and so, and obviously, we're not going to go over every name. It would take forever to do that. But one of the things we want to look for is what stands out. And is there anything about what stands out? And, and I, I mentioned that there are four women that are named in this genealogy. And that while that's not as uncommon as you might think, it's not unheard of, but it is very rare. And one of the things we want to ask is why would Matthew bring these particular women to the forefront? And we looked at two of them last week. Uh, one of them was Tamar. And we saw through her story with Judah that we saw the humility and we saw the repentance of Judah in her story. 
And then if you look at uh, Rahab and you saw her story, you remember that her story was a story of faith. And, and, even, uh, and even James and even the writer of Hebrews mentions that Rahab is an example and a model of faith. And so we saw that in order to enter the kingdom of God, the promises that we have in the son of Abraham, the son of David, if we're going to enter into those promises, then we must do so by repentance and we must do so by faith. We saw that last week. But what we also must understand is that not just any repentance will do. You see, if, if I'm drowning in debt and I decide I'm not, I'm, I just don't wanna be in debt anymore and I take my credit cards and I cut them up, right? Well, that's good as far as it goes, but what's the problem there? Then really, you're still in debt. Nothing really changed, Right? And so often that's how people treat repentance, that if I'm just sorry for my sins and I ask for forgiveness, and that's fine, and I can go on. But there's actually more than that. Paul says that there is a repentance of the world that leads, there's a sorrow of the world that leads to death, but there is a sorrow of God, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and leads to life. And we saw, we've also talked about how faith is in and of itself. You can have the most sincere faith in the world, but if you've got the faith in the wrong thing, then you can be sincerely misled. And we talked about that. And so, beloved, it's not the greatness that saves us. It's the greatness of the one whom we have faith in. That's what saves us. Jesus says you can have the faith of a grain of mustard seed. You can have a small faith, but if you've got a small faith in a big God, then that's a faith that will save you. And so we need to look at what is, who is it that we are to repent to and what is, who is it that we are to have faith in? And I believe that's where the stories of Ruth and Bathsheba are leading us. You say, Bathsheba, really? We'll get there. So, so we're gonna look at their stories this morning and we're gonna spend most of our time in the book of Ruth. You see, in, you see in verse five, and Salmon was the father of Boaz, Boaz, I'm sorry, by Rahab, and Rahab was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed is a name I'm very familiar with. I say it every morning when I wake up. Obed, how I long for you tonight. You guys laughed at that, thank you. <laughs> so we're gonna look at Ruth chapter one this morning and we're gonna see what is, it about, what is it about Ruth's story that Matthew is wanting us to notice here? What is Matthew calling to our attention? And you know the story of Ruth and I'm not gonna spend a, just a ton of time here, but I do want you to see enough of the story to know why Matthew is calling it to our attention Ruth, uh, her story begins in verse in chapter one of Ruth, and you find that her mother-in-law Naomi loses both her husband and her sons. She is living in the land of Moab at this time. And just to give you a little background, that in the Old Testament understanding of the covenant, to move away from the promised land was to move away from the covenant. There was apparently a famine. There was a famine. I think that's what it says, right? Yeah, that there's a famine in the land of Israel. And therefore, due to a lack of faith, due to a lack of faith in God's provision, they move out and they go to Moab. And while they are 
are there in Moab, the two sons, uh, they marry two Moabitesses. One of them is uh, Orpah, and the other is named Ruth. And no, her, her name is not Oprah. Her name is Orpah, so just keep that in mind. But anyway, so finally, out of desperation, her, her, two, her husband and both boys pass away. And of course, the two sons, when they die, there are three widows that are living in the land of Moab. Three Israelite widows who are living in Moab. Excuse me, one Israelite, two Moabite widows. And so finally, out of desperation, Naomi, she hears that the famine is over in Israel and she intends to go back home and she intends to go alone. In fact, if you look in verse eight of of chapter one, I want you to hear what she says just to kind of get you in her mindset. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May Yahweh show loving kindness with you as he has shown with with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And she said to them in verse 11, they're, 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 um, they're protesting here. And she says that, uh, return my daughters, why should you go with me? Yet I, have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, that I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is more bitter for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone against me. And so she is telling them, do not follow me. I am, I am going nowhere And with some persuasion, Orpah agrees to stay, but not Ruth. Ruth utters some of the most beautiful words in verse 16 and 17. In fact, uh, I've actually heard someone before in their wedding use this as their wedding vows uh, to her her groom. Um, She didn't say it to her in-laws, but uh, but what's happening here is that uh, she is saying it to her mother-in-law She says, do not press me to forsake you into turning back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and more if anything but death separates you from me. Isn't that beautiful? That is absolutely beautiful. And so when Naomi sees that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. But again, you just have to look at verse 19 and 20 just to see where Naomi is. Naomi, you're back. Don't call me Naomi anymore. My name is Mara because Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. So this is a woman who has lost all hope This is a woman who has grown very bitter at her circumstances. This is a woman who is really, in her understanding, she's coming back to the land to die. Why is that? Well, because I want you to see Ruth's faith 
And in determining and seeing Ruth's face, we're going to faith. We're going to see some of the uh, some of the circumstances and some of the challenges that she's up against. If you're not familiar with what's going on, the significance of this is really easy to miss. This is this is an incredible step of faith for Ruth. She's returning from her Moabite gods. She's rejecting them, and she is going to the true God of Israel. So right here in this story, we are seeing a picture of repentance and faith like we saw in the story of Tamar and we saw in the story of Rahab. But we're gonna see more here because she is facing overwhelming odds by going to Israel, overwhelming odds. Why is that? Because first of all, she is a widow. She is a widow and you need to understand today, I know we have widows in this room and in our, and in our Christianized nation, we are, we are enough of a Christian nation to know that widows and orphans are those that we need to look after. And we have systems in place to help do that. We have social security, we have retirement, we have things like that that assist you. They did not have that back then. They didn't have that back then. In fact, you remember James chapter one, verse 27. What does he say real religion is? It is looking after widows and orphans. Beloved, when he says that, I want you to understand that in his culture, he's pointing to some of the most downtrodden people in society, widows and orphans. It's not the same back then. Society was very harsh against widows, very harsh. They were the lowest segment of society and they were treated like that. Most of the time they had to wear special clothing. You may remember that, uh, that Tamar in our story, she had to remove her widow's clothing in order to go to Judah. And so they had to wear special clothing that identified them as a widow. And oftentimes it would ostracize them from the rest of the community. Their family property was often taken from them and they would end up destitute, homeless. Their only chance was to move back with their father and that was if he would take her. Oftentimes, he wouldn't. Many end up, ended up homeless and more than a few ended up as harlots. It was the only way they could survive. She would have been considered stained, impure, and no better than a harlot. That's how the culture would have looked upon her. So she had that, but she was also childless. She was not only a widow, but she was also childless. And, and again, you need to understand the significance of that for this culture. The writer in 1-1, makes it, he makes it a point to say that this is happening in the days of judges. And, 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 and so when he says this, ladies, I'm sorry, but in this culture, it was bad enough that she was a widow and all of the stigma that came with that. But to be childless in this culture would have been considered to be cursed by God. Cursed by God. No one would have wanted her to come into her house because they would have not wanted to invite God's curse upon them or their family. And not only this, but any property that they would have acquired under their husband would have been taken, would have been taken. So she was considered impure, unchaste, and not only that, under the curse of God. You say, well, won't anybody show kindness to her? Well, they might if she were an Israelite, but that's the third strike. She wasn't an Israelite. 
She was a Moabite. And like I said, the writer in Judges 1.1, the writer, he makes it a point to say that this is happening in the days of Judges. And guess what? In the days of Judges, guess who one of Israel's number one enemies were? Moabites. And it's hard to be dogmatic about this, but during the book of Judges, one of those major enemies, one of the culture that Israel was supposed to have wiped out and didn't, one of the, one of the cultures that is still living in this area, and like I said, it's hard to be dogmatic about this, but I cannot help but to wonder if this is happening actually in the days where Israel might have been fighting Moab at the time. It's hard to be dogmatic, but the math does kind of suggest it based on the ages and such. They were an enemy nation, a godless people whom Israel was to have no contact with. She was understood as an enemy of God's people. She was an enemy of God. And she knew that by accompanying Naomi back to Israel in her state, where she was, who she was as a person, she knew that more than likely she was facing certain starvation. But what she was also doing was throwing herself at the mercy of God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She's forsaking the Moabite gods and throwing herself to the mercy of Yahweh. She had no reason whatsoever to expect anything good from Israel, no mercy, no kindness, nothing. She's not just unclean, impure, under the curse of God. She is also an enemy of God, the enemy of God's people. She is the worst of the worst. Who on earth would ever love someone like that? Unchaste, impure, curse of God, and the enemy of God's people. Who on earth would show any kindness to a person like that whatsoever? And yet, beginning in chapter two, we're introduced to a man named Boaz. And in chapter two in Boaz, we we find out that Ruth is going to work in a field. Naomi is just content of staying there and just really just starving, not doing anything just due to neglect and inaction or whatever. She's too bitter to even find any kind of, any kind of work. And so Ruth decides that she's gonna go out and she's gonna glean for the family. And back then, uh, according to Israel's law, they had to keep the corners of their fields ungleaned and anything that they dropped on the ground, they were not allowed to pick it up and that would allow the poor in the nation to come in after them and be able to, uh, be able to harvest the corners of their fields and pick up anything that was dropped. So it's kind of like welfare, but you might call it workfare instead. And so they were allowed to, they were allowed to do this. And so, uh, so, so Ruth goes out into this field and she is um, going to take advantage of this law. And I, and I love how it words this. And so she went in verse three and she came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And it just so happened that she came to the field of who? To Boaz. Boy, it's amazing how oftentimes when you're a believer, things just so happen, don't they? 
And so Boaz comes out in the field in verse five, and I want you to notice a couple things. He says, it says he took notice of her. He took notice of her. And this is an important point. Ruth does not come to Boaz begging and pleading. She's not manipulating. She's just going to a field, and it just so happens to be Boaz's field. In fact, every, that is the whole point of this story, that all of the kindness, everything that's gonna happen to Ruth is not gonna be of anything she does, but it's gonna be as a direct result of the kindness and the generosity and the mercy of Boaz. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so he sees her, he takes, he goes to her. She has no reason to expect any of it. She probably doesn't even know his name, but he notices her. In verses eight through 10, Boaz says to Ruth, have you not heard my daughter? Do not glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the young men not to touch you. And if you are thirsty, go to the waters, go to the water jars and drink from what the young men draw. He protects her. He not only notices her, but he, he says, I want you to not go anywhere else because everything you need, I'm gonna provide for you. And I'm gonna make sure that the young men do not throw you out because you're a Moabitess. I wanna make sure that you're okay. Had she gone to any other's field, there would have been a good chance that she would have been discovered as a Moabite and told to leave. She was probably, I, I expect, she was probably expecting that she would have to go to two or three fields that day just to find enough to, to stave off the day's hunger. Perhaps everything she gleaned would have been taken or worse yet, she might have been assaulted. He promises her, if you stay right here, I will give you everything you need and I will protect you. And nothing bad, nothing harmful will come to you. And so he provides for her. He protects her. But then in verse 14 and, verse, and through verses 23, she comes to his table, she eats, and then, and then Boaz tells the people who are harvesting, he says, uh, you see that young woman right there? I want you to drop a little extra for her. And so she's able to glean not only a day's, I mean, she's able to glean so much that she actually, this is beyond provision. This is above and beyond. And when she comes home and shows everything she has to Naomi, Naomi's like, whoa, <laughs> where did you go? She says, I went to Boaz. She says, hmm, he's got the hots for you. He's got the hots for you. I was, uh, whenever I worked in North Little Rock, there was an Arby's there right down the street from where I worked, and I would go there for lunch, and one of the reasons why was because I would always order the mozzarella sticks, and there was a girl there that used to give me a couple extra in my order every time. I thought she liked me. She didn't. She didn't know how to count. So, <laughs> what did I know? So, <laughs> like a dog, you feed me, you're, you got me for life, you know? <laughs> so... This is above and beyond. This is not just handing her a $20 bill. This is handing her his personal credit card and saying, everything you need, take it and use it abundantly. Naomi notices this and, and she provides, that he provides for her beyond anything that she could have hoped and Naomi immediately begins to understand what's going on. And not only that, she says, he's a close 
relative. He is someone that can help. He's in a position to help. And because of that, Boaz provides redemption for Ruth. And in chapter three through chapter four, Boaz, Naomi tells her, I want you to do something. I want you to go to Boaz. I want you to notice in verses one through 10 of chapter three, he says, and now in verse two, now Boaz is our kinsman with whose young women you were. Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. So wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best clothes and you shall go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And let it be when he lies down, you shall know the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you shall do. I want you to understand there's nothing immoral happening here. It's a, it's a custom. It's, there's a law of the kinsman redeemer and essentially what she's doing is she's uncovering his feet and she's asking him to bring her under his protection. She's asking him for marriage, essentially. And I want you to notice her respo- his response in verse 10. He says, may you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter, for you have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor nor rich. Uh, you know, I can just imagine Boaz's response here. I mean, can you imagine that she's doing this and he goes, whoa, you got the wrong idea here. I was just being nice to you. I don't wanna marry you. I mean, I mean, you could almost see Boaz having that kind of response, but he doesn't. Not only does he accept her request, but he's actually overjoyed by her request. He says, you have shown, your kindness you've shown to me now is even more than the kindness than you've shown before because you haven't gone after one of the young bucks. You chose me. And he says, stay here tonight and be, and be protected and I will do everything that is needed. And so much so that he goes out of his way to make it happen. You know, the Bible says that all heaven rejoices over the return of one sinner. I want you to understand, beloved, Jesus is not just accepting when he comes, when you come to him. Oh, here's another one that has to come. No, when you come to Jesus Christ, he is joyous over you. He rejoices over you. He rejoices that another sinner has come home. And there's a party in heaven over one sinner that repents because of the overwhelming joy that comes from the redemption of one sinner. Boaz is showing that joy. She has chosen. She has chosen to ask Boaz to redeem her. And he could not show more joy. He could not rejoice anymore. And he does all the work for her. I'm not gonna go into the details. There is some legal maneuvering that needs to go on. Technically, there is a closer redeemer. There was someone who was nearer to her dead husband than Boaz was, and in the law, he got first pick. He got first right. And I want you to notice here that technically under the law, she's the one who should have gone to the city gate. She's the one who should have handled this. And the nearer kinsman, the nearer redeemer, did not, he did not want to redeem her. And to go there and to do this would have put her into so much shame. 
In fact, we see that process in the law when, when, a near, when a kinsman redeemer refuses to redeem the wife of a dead relative and, and the shame that is associated with that, that she, would, she was supposed to take off her sandal and, and spit and slap him in the face with a sandal, which was a, which was a sign of shame and curse. And Boaz didn't want her to experience that, so he goes, he goes and does it for her. Essentially, he's taking the shame upon himself. He sees him in the city gates, and he offers him the redemption. He offers him the land, and of course, the, the, the guy's all about that. Yeah, I'll take the land. No problem. Well, along with that comes a young Moabitess named Ruth. Nope, can't do that. And Boaz says, then I will redeem her. He was not willing to experience that, any of that. And of course, the other man refuses. So Boaz comes back and in verse 13 of chapter four, he, he takes Ruth and she becomes his wife. And she bore him a son. And you notice verse 14, and the women said to Naomi, blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today and may his name be proclaimed in Israel. May he also now be a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than seven sons has given birth to him. Ruth went from someone who was absolutely cursed and despicable before Israel, and now she has, through, through the redemption of Boaz, she has been restored. And all Israel rejoices. Now, I want you to see God's plan in this. Because in verses 16 through 18, we find out that this is not just a, a little Cinderella story. This is not just a little cute love story tucked into the words of scripture. You see, what Ruth's story demonstrates is that we must be redeemed. You see, each one of us, just like, just like Ruth, each one of us, we are unclean, we are, we are cursed by sin, we are under the curse of Adam, under the curse of God, and we are enemies of God, we are enemies of his people, and through the redemption of our kinsman redeemer, through Jesus Christ, you and I come to be restored into the household of God. That is redemption. And that's what Matthew is pointing us to, that if you want to be in the hope, if you want to see the fulfillment of the son of Abraham, the son of David, and if you want to come into his kingdom, you must respond by repentance and faith, and you must express that repentance and faith to the one who is here to redeem you. To the redeemer, we put our faith in the redemption of the one who is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and of David. You see here, now these are the generations of Perez and you see it goes down and come to find out Salmon who is the father of Boaz, Boaz who is the father of Obed, Obed is the father of Jesse and guess who is Jesse's son? King David. And so this is not just a cute little love story, but this is pointing to the hope of the Davidic king. It's pointing to the hope that comes with David's kingdom. 
And Matthew is, is pointing us to that hope. Go back to Matthew chapter one. He's pointing us to that hope by bringing up Ruth's story, by reminding us of what happened. He's showing us that there is redemption that we must come into. By repentance and faith, we come to the redemption of Jesus Christ. And yet when we look at Ruth's story, it only leads to the hope of David. But look, in, look on down. In verse six, I told you there were four women. Jesse is the father of David, the king. David is the king. He was the one whom Ruth's story was pointing to. But then David was the father of Solomon. By who? Bathsheba. Wait a minute. If you're using the New American Standard, it says Bathsheba there, doesn't it? Here's the thing. The name Bathsheba is not actually in the text. Here's what it says. It says, and, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's all it says. Bathsheba is not actually mentioned in the Greek, not by name. He's calling attention to David. He's not calling attention to David's son. He's calling attention to David's sin. He's calling attention to the sin that David committed. He doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name. He says that, that David is the father of Solomon through the wife of another man. A man who, by the way, he later had murdered to cover up his own sin before Solomon was born. Why would he do that? Because David's not the guy. David's not the redeemer. You see, all throughout Israel, Israel was waiting for a new David. They were waiting for a Davidic king. They were waiting for a king that would be just like David. And Matthew, in giving this, this genealogy and showing them the history and saying, yes, David is the one you're waiting for. And, da and Matthew's saying, no, he's not. No, he's not. He is not qualified to redeem us. He is a man of blood. He could not even build the temple. He cannot build God's people. He cannot save you. He must save himself from his own sin. He's got his own sin to worry about. He can't save you from your sin. And as you go down through the genealogy, you will find that the whole story through the rest of Israel is nothing but incomplete revivals and rebellion and loss. David's whole line, all of his earthly sons are failures. Matthew's saying David's not the guy. Yes, the promises are coming. Yes, the, the, the promises of Father Abraham and King David are secure, but David's not the guy that you should be looking for. Who's the one you should be looking for? You should be looking for the one who is to be born, the child of David, the son of David, the one to whom David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David in his sin recognized that there is a greater son coming. And that son is the one who is proclaimed on Christmas, the one who was born in Bethlehem, 
It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Matthew is giving this genealogy to show us what it is to be in the kingdom. This is the kingdom heritage. And through the stories of these four women, we see what it is, what, it, what is required to enter into the kingdom. You must have the repentance of Judah. You must have the faith of Rahab to come to the Redeemer pictured in the story of Ruth. And that Redeemer is not David the King. It is Jesus Christ, David's son. And that's what the rest of the gospel is gonna be about. It's gonna be about Jesus Christ. He's gonna tell us who he was. He's gonna tell us what it is to live in the kingdom of Christ, what we call discipleship. And he's gonna tell us who Christ is and what he did for us and what he expects of us. There are so many things that people look for today to save them, to redeem them, to make things right. There are so many things. There's a beautiful picture of redemption here in the story of Ruth. And yet the story of Ruth is incomplete at this aspect, that it, that it brings us to David but we see that David is not the redeemer. David sinned terribly. And yet that story of redemption through David's son moves on. And beloved, if you're here this morning and your faith is in a human king, if your faith is in a false savior, if your faith is in anything other than Jesus Christ, then you are not in the kingdom of God. And I would implore you this morning to come to Christ, to respond to him in repentance of your sins, in faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he is the one who has redeemed you from your sins. He did all the work, just like, just like, just like Boaz did in the story we saw. He, he came to where we were. He went and he did all the work, all the shame that could have been, that should have been piled on us. He took all of that upon himself and all the guilt and all the sin, all of it was laid upon his shoulders in order that you and I could be redeemed by his blood. And he died for our sins so that you and I can be forgiven. And he, and he rose on the third day so that you and I can have new life in the kingdom of God. Is your faith in anything other than that? Are you trusting education? Are you trusting politics? Are you trusting just whatever to save you, to make all things right? Or are you trusting in the one who has come to set us right with God? That's the only way you can be right. That's the only way you can be healed. I pray this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I would love to share him with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. I know that I have not given justice to the richness and depth. Lord, I know that there's so much more that could have been said and maybe even should have been said, but I pray you would take these weak words this morning. And I pray that you would use them to draw us closer to yourself. Help us see that every word of God 
is pure. Every word of God is profitable for reproof and correction. And even in the history of Israel, even in the genealogy, we find hints of what you're doing. And Lord, as we see those stories, we see the, we see the redemption of Christ prefigured in, in these people whom you worked through so many years ago. But we have such an advantage now because we have seen Christ. We have seen him born. We have seen him live. We've seen him die. We've seen him risen again. And now we see him at the right hand of the Father offering himself as a savior to anyone who would come in repentance and faith for redemption. And Lord, if there's anything else they're trusting in, I pray they would forsake that today and that they would come to you. Let's all stand. I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads for a few and just kind of reflect on what we've talked about. If there's any need that you have, I invite you to come as our, as our musicians play. Name of the song is Emmanuel. That word in Hebrew means God with us. My question to you this morning is God with you this morning. Is he living within you? Have you accepted Christ as your savior? Do you know him as your Lord? If not, I would love to talk to you. There's others who would love to talk to you. If you're here, we do want to hear from you this morning. God wants to hear from you this morning.